Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. Here at Catholic History Trek, Kevin and I are striving to break new ground to provide an interesting and informative podcast covering Catholic history. Earlier this year, we upgraded our recording software and audio equipment to address some technical issues with our first episodes. In the spring, we began adding our episodes to YouTube, providing video content. Recently, Kevin may not know this yet, I began adding some of our videos to Rumble. Our latest podcast was recorded at Schmeezing Studio, located on the grounds of the Schmeezing Estate, for our first in-person podcast. And today, we are breaking new ground, recording at Schulze Studio. While Kevin and I seek to improve the content of our podcast and continue to reform our podcast, Our topic in this episode is a man who reformed his life, a religious order he started, and ultimately, the church. Kevin and I will be discussing the well-known, but often misunderstood, St. Francis of Assisi and the Order of Friars Minor, known as the Franciscans, which he established. Born in Umbria in 1181 or 1182, apparently they needed to listen to Kevin's recent podcast on the Gregorian calendar to figure out exactly when he was born. He was one of several children to Pietro Bernardone, a wealthy cloth merchant, and his wife Pica. He was baptized as Giovanni, but in infancy, he was renamed Francesco. Possibly his parents thought Franciscan sounded better than Giovannian for a future order their son would found, but in all seriousness, it's often assumed a fondness of France, where Pietro's business dealings had led him, was the impetus for the renaming of the saint. Francesco indulged in every whim, showing little interest in study or work, and lavishly spent his parents' money. When he was about 20, he went to fight with Assisi against the Perusians, in one of many petty skirmishes frequently fought between individual rival Italian city-states. He was captured and held prisoner for over a year. Upon returning to Assisi, he resolved to enter military service and arranged to join a knight of Assisi, who is setting out to join the gentle count, Walter Brienne in the Neapolitan state's fight against the emperor. The night before setting out, Francis had a dream. He saw a vast hall in which hung much armor, all marked with a cross. A voice informed him the armor was for him and his soldiers. After he set out, he contracted an illness at Spoleto and then had another dream which convinced him to turn back to Assisi. Returning to Assisi, Francis' demeanor changed and he abandoned his wasteful living in pointless ways. He determined to marry Lady Poverty and sought prayer in solitude. In one account, while riding on horseback, Francis spotted a leper, which repulsed him, and so he turned away. But, disgusted by his instinctive reaction, he returned, embraced the leper, and gave him all the money he had. Francis then set out on a pilgrimage to Rome, but was dismayed by the miserly offerings at the tomb of St. Peter. So he emptied his purse there, he exchanged his rich clothing with the poor man, and spent the rest of the day fasting among the beggars at the door of St. Peter's Basilica. After returning home from Rome, he began praying at an ancient crucifix at St. Damien's Church in Assisi, which is often referred to as San Damiano. And this is where the Franciscan's unique San Damiano crucifix originates. The crucifix was painted by an unknown Umbrian artist in the 12th century, With the Syrian influence in the icons and the presence of Syrian monks in the area at the time, it's assumed it was either painted by them or for them. San Damiano was not a parish church and had been abandoned and neglected, and as such, the Blessed Sacrament was not reserved in the church, 
and rather this crucifix hung over the altar instead. This crucifix has figures painted beside Christ. From the top to bottom, the figures are God the Father, various angels, the Blessed Virgin Mary and John on one side, Mary Magdalene, Mary Clopas, and the Centurion of Capernaum on the other side. Smaller figures on the sides represented the soldiers who pierced him and offered him wine. And at the bottom are some unknown saints whose images eroded with time. Years later, in 1257, the original crucifix followed the poor Clares from San Damiano to San Giorgio, where it has remained for the past 700 years. While praying before this crucifix, Francis heard a voice commanding him, Go, Francis, and repair my house, which, as you see, is falling into ruin. Francis assumed the inspiration was to repair the church of San Damiano, so he returned home, took goods from his father's shop, and raced to sell the items and his horse for gold necessary to make the repairs. Francis returned to San Damiano and offered the gold to a poor priest who served there, but the priest adamantly refused it. To avoid his father's wrath for taking and selling his father's items, Francis then spent a month hiding in a cave nearby the church. When he finally emerged, he was mocked and attacked by locals before his father had him bound, beaten, and locked in a dark closet. Later, his mother freed him during his father's absence, and Francis returned to San Damiano. Francis then had been taken to the bishop where his father sought to disinherit him, and Francis eagerly stripped himself of his clothes, gave them to his father, and declared, I have called you my father on earth. Henceforth, I desire to say, only our father, who art in heaven. Heading to the hills, Francis was attacked by robbers who took the little he had and threw him into the snow. Naked and frozen, he found refuge at a neighboring monastery where he worked as a kitchen helper. Returning to Assisi, he went through the city, begging for stones to restore the church of San Damiano. He rebuilt the church and then St. Peter's and St. Mary of the Angels. In 1208, hearing Mass at St. Mary of the Angels, where he had built a nearby hut, the Gospel told of Christ informing his disciples to possess neither gold nor silver, nor two coats, nor shoes, nor staff. They were to exhort sinners to repentance and announce the kingdom of God. This became an important turning point in the life of Francis. He gave away what little he had, exchanging his clothes for a coarse wool tunic, which was worn by the poorest Umbrian peasants, tied around him with a knotted rope. Soon, men began to join Francis. They opened a random book of the Gospels and landing upon passages where Christ instructed his disciples to leave all things behind and follow him, they made this their rule of life. Finally, when 11 companions had joined Francis, he drew up his original rule, often referred to as the Rule of 1209, basically adopting the Gospel passages they were following, and they set out to Rome to receive papal approval for their way of life. Accounts differ regarding Francis' reception by Pope Innocent III when he reached Rome, but, in short, the Pope had initially rudely rejected Francis and his friars minor, then had a dream in which he beheld Francis upholding the tottering church, and gave approval to the rule submitted by Francis, granting them to preach repentance everywhere. In this order, they were called the Order of Friars Minor. Before departing Rome, they all received the ecclesiastical tonsure, which you can hear more about in our Catholic History Trek episode on the Minor Orders. Later on, Francis was ordained to the major order of deacon, but never a priest. In 1218, the Benedictines gave Francis the chapel of St. Mary of the Angels for the Friars Minor. There, a few huts were built of mud and straw, enclosed by a hedge, 
which became the first Franciscan convent. And from there, the Friars Minor went out two by two, preaching and calling themselves the Lord's Minstrels. A year later, in 1212, Claire of Assisi, who was only 18 years old, sought to follow the life of Francis. So, she snuck out of her home with two companions and joined the Franciscans. She stayed with nearby Benedictine nuns until a home could be established for the women. San Damiano, rebuilt previously by Francis, became the first home for the Franciscan Order of the Poor Ladies, also known as the Poor Clares, named after Claire. After their order had been established, Francis went around with his followers evangelizing central Italy. Following the death of Pope Innocent III, Francis sought a plenary indulgence for pilgrimages to the Port Zionchila. Pope Honorius III, against the wish of many in the Curia, who had many valid reasons for opposing such an unheard-of indulgence, granted this request, which became known as the Port Zionchila Indulgence. It is granted on one day annually, August 2nd, to any who visit this chapel. 1217, the first general chapter of the Friars Minor was held at the Port Zionchila, and established the first provinces and mission territories headed by various friars minor. Over the next year, Francis preached at Rome at the request of Cardinal Ugolino, the future Pope Gregory IX, who is an ardent supporter and admirer of the friars minor. It's said that during this time in the Eternal City, Francis met St. Dominic, thus initiating the long-standing connection between the Franciscans and Dominicans. Preaching in Italy, at Camara, the whole congregation were so moved by his words that they presented himself to be admitted to his order. Thus, Francis established the Third Order as a middle state between the world and the cloister for those whose duties compelled them to remain in the secular world, but who sought the Franciscan spirituality. In 1219, at the second general chapter, they assigned separate missions for the foremost disciples, and Francis assigned himself to evangelize to the sacristans. And details on his mission to Holy Land will be covered a moment later when we talk about the missions of the Franciscans. Regardless, while Francis was away on this mission, troubles arose within the order, and Francis had to hastily return home. Around 1220 or 1221, the Franciscans held the informally named Chapter of Mats. Not named for a location called Mats, but rather named for the many mats which some of the more than 5,000 Franciscans used for sleeping and sitting, who had gathered for the chapter. At this rugged gathering, Francis despondently realized a large number of the rapidly increasing friars had relaxed the rigors of the rule. Although this was a two-way street, some historians argue that Francis' stance against book learning and owning books, which sort of necessary for studying for the priesthood, was a bit excessive. And, Francis relinquished his position as superior general of the order to Peter of Cataneo. Peter only lived for one year and was succeeded by brother Elias, who led the order until the death of Francis. Next year, Francis drew up a new rule for the order, essentially based on the 1209 rule proved by Pope Innocent, but with some modifications accounting for the changes in the order which had ballooned in size and scope over the 12 years since its inception. Supposedly, Brother Elias lost this rule, and it wasn't enforced. It's a matter of speculation as to whether it was accidentally lost, or perhaps intentionally lost due to it being too strict for the many friars minor to want to follow. So a couple years later, Francis rewrote the rule, which was approved by Pope Honorius III, and the second rule has remained the rule ever since. Also in this year, Francis inaugurated the popular devotion of the creche, or nativity, by reproducing at a church in Greccio the Bethlehem nativity scene. 
The next year, in 1224, in early August, Francis retired to a mountain to undertake a 40-day fast in preparation for Michaelmas, which is today, September 29th, the day that Kevin and I are recording the episode. Two weeks before Michaelmas, on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, Francis beheld a vision of seraphs, and then he received the stigmata, which is the physical manifestations of the five wounds of Christ. After he received the stigmata, the next year he visited St. Clair one last time, where he composed his famous Canticle of the Sun, and unfortunately his body, which he often called Brother Ass, had been neglected by years of harsh fasting and penance and began to break down and his eyes failed him. In 1226, he died at the Port Zioncula at the age of only 45. A couple years later, he was canonized by Pope Gregory IX, and a couple years after that, Brother Elias secretly transferred his body far below the high altar at St. George's Church, where it remained hidden until it was finally discovered in 1818. Thank you, Scott, for that excellent summary of his life. I was just add one a point here by way of reference to an excellent resource on this as well. Um, a good modern history of the life of St. Francis is one by Augustine Thompson, who is a Dominican. Scott, you mentioned the connection between the Dominicans and Franciscans dating all the way back to the 13th century. Some would say rivalry even at times, but uh, nonetheless, this is a great example of uh, a friendly connection. Augustine Thompson, a Dominican, wrote uh, an extensive two-volume history of St. Francis and the beginnings of the Franciscan order, but that was distilled into a shorter volume also. So Thompson brings a fundamentally sympathetic view to the life of Francis, yet at the same time employs rigorous historical methods. So he he doesn't dismiss out of hand uh, some of the more florid legends associated with Francis, like the Wolf of Gobio and preaching to the birds and so forth, um, but he does cover and focus on those aspects of Francis's life that are more supported by the historical record. And Scott, I know you're going to say more about the distinction between uh, myth and reality when it comes to the life of Francis. Yeah, and I think that's one of the uh, amazing things that Kevin mentions, whether you read that book or one of the many books have been written about him that are focused on the true authentic history of him, is that there's a very... <laughs> large difference between the popular myth of how people, at least in my generation and Kevin's generation, were raised with understanding St. Francis as kind of this gentle, peace-loving, animal-loving, new-age kind of hippie guy, and the true Francis. And as you read these histories, it's very fascinating that, yes, he does, you know, love and protect the animals in the natural world, such as that wolf, but he's doing it because he, it's, he sees it as God's creation. And when you read his life, you see how ardently Catholic he was. He had a huge desire to shed his blood for Christ, to preach to the infidels, made several attempts to reach the Holy Land, to evangelize the Mohammedans. Uh, he was extremely Eucharistic. The Blessed Sacrament had a huge place in his life, and he was so reverent, so in awe of the Holy Eucharist that he, that is one of the reasons that said why he never pursued the priesthood, because he had such a reverence for, and in his humility, he did not feel he was worthy of such an honor. So just wanted to point out that there is much more to the man, and obviously if Kevin and I had a week, we could probably do justice to the history of Francis. And it's certainly not exclusive to St. Francis, this problem of 
myths, legends, uh, different kinds of um, images, I guess, of saints that develop over time. But maybe it's more a problem with St. Francis and others just because he's been so popular uh, throughout Western history um, and including in popular culture that he's kind of been used for a lot of different purposes and agendas and so forth. And so maybe with Francis, there's even more of a need to get back to the original figure, if you will. So as Scott mentioned, of course, Francis, uh, one of the things he's best known for is the founding of the order that bears his name today. And there have been thousands and thousands of Franciscans down through the ages. Uh, not only thousands and thousands of Franciscans, but many Franciscans of different flavors, I guess you could say, different religious orders and congregations that make up the overarching Franciscan family. So Scott and I wanted to say a few words about these various uh, distinctions among different kinds of Franciscans because it can be a little bit confusing. Um, and in fact, it's possible that you'll still be confused after we talk about it or maybe more <laughs> confused than you were before. But any, at any rate, we'll make an attempt to clarify some matter. So the first thing to say about uh, the Franciscan family is that there are, in essence, three orders. The first order, the second order, and the third order Franciscans. There are distinctions within those as well, but the first order would be the Order of Friars Minor that Scott mentioned. This was the original order, uh, the order of uh, fathers and brothers that Francis himself founded. The second order refers to the Franciscans on the female side, which is to say the order founded by St. Clair, frequently called Poor Clares. And then the third order was founded uh, with the terminology of the Brothers and Sisters of Penance. Scott mentioned the foundation of that order to uh, permit lay people who were not called to consecrate a religious life but wanted to live the charisms of the Franciscan family, they would become the Third Order. Now, one of the issues here with this terminology of Third Order, that's a terminology that's broader than Franciscans. You can see it in Dominicans and other families of orders within the Catholic Church. And that terminology, third order, has not always been used consistently across the different congregations, nor consistently down through time. And so, in fact, at this point in time, over the centuries since the foundation of the Franciscans, a variety of the third order developed that is more like normal consecrated religious life. And this is known today as the third order regular. And so you have priests who take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, who are part of the third order regular. And yet at the same time, you still have the lay people who are in the third order and they are known today as secular Franciscans. And so they use the postnomial letters SFO for secular Franciscan order. Third order regular uses the postnomials TOR, third order regular. And then you have the OFMs who are the order of friars minor but it gets even more complicated than that because there are varieties of the Order of Friars Minor or Franciscan Friars. And Scott's gonna say a little bit about the development of those different varieties within the OFMs. So one thing I wanted to mention that Kevin's talking about, I mean, we're already getting a little confused and we're just doing, I mean, we're just doing first order, second order, third order, and then other third order. If you know anything about the history of railroads, and I feel I need to pull that back in. It's been a while, we've kind of fell away from railroads. You know that consolidations and mergers go back to the foundations of the railways. Just looking at modern class one railroads, the CSX, which operates in the eastern half of the U.S. where Kevin and I live, about 20 years ago, 
Part of Conrail was acquired by CSX, which itself was a merger of the Chessie system and Seaboard. And the Chessie system, of course, was a merger of the CNO, the Western Maryland, and the BNO, which is the BNO from the Monopoly game. And these mergers were mergers of mergers of other mergers dating back over a century. The reason I point this out, other than for Kevin's benefit and enjoyment, is because the history of the Friars Minor takes the exact opposite track. Instead of merging, they basically split, split, and split. By the time of St. Bonaventure, his leadership of the order in the mid-13th century, there had emerged opposing camps. And these camps were essentially consisted of conventuals who were the majority of the Friars Minor who were sort of a moderate camp. Seeking some relaxation of the strictness of the rule of Francis, as I mentioned previously, when he returned from the Holy Land, there were already some divisions starting to brew. And this is, I mean, that was just in the first decade. So now you're getting to the mid-13th century, getting a little more of that. And then, so not only do you have these conventuals who are kind of in the middle, on the one side, you had a group called the Relaxati who are trying to relax the rule, basically seeking a more extreme break away from the rule. And then on the other side, you had Zelati or the spirituals who sought to halt the laxity as well as they could to the letter of what St. Francis had written. At the Council of Vienna in 1213, a compromise was made. Basically, the Order of Friars Minor decided they would continue to renounce property, but allowed for the use of it, the proper use of it, when it was given to the Franciscan. It's property and goods. A decade later, the issue is still present, so Pope John XXII followed a long string of popes before him, becoming involved in the dispute. The Pope requested the help of a Dominican to weigh in on the issue, and the Dominican sided with a rule basically similar to what the Dominicans did, allowing for property. But of course, that didn't solve the issue because you still had these three main camps, and by the mid-14th century and early 15th century, the fracturing order Friars Minor essentially fell into two primary camps. The conventuals, mentioned previously, who were kind of the middle of the road, and then the observants, who took the approach of the aforementioned spirituals, who were very observant to the rule of St. Francis. This period was marked with a couple key events outside the control of the Franciscans, which also greatly affected this dispute. The Black Death decimated Europe's populations, and it emptied towns and monasteries alike, meaning new Franciscans were hastily admitted without sufficient examination, leading to an increase in the more lax members of the order. Also, you had the Western Schism, which brought open disputes over who the actual Pope was, which throughout Europe did lead to a general lack of obedience in religious matters because you know, people were debating over who to even follow, which unfortunately lasted up to the election of Martin V in 1417 at the Council of Constance. And compounding the issue, the laity became more involved in the dealings with the Friars Minor by making gifts and endowments to the order. And there were even cases where townspeople who favored one group over the other would kick a group out of a monastery and hand it over to an opposing group. And to make matters even worse, some of the great Franciscan saints took opposing views. So in the mid-1400s, the general order, St. Bernardine of Siena, sought to keep unity in the order. Meanwhile, his successor, St. Johnny Capistrano, sought to officially establish a second office of general for the observance as a separate order from that of the conventuals. By 1517, the chapter meeting of the Friars Minor declared all the reform groups other than the observance to be suppressed. And they marked the observance as an official independent order, completely separate from the conventuals. After the official split in 1517 between the conventuals and the observance, 
you might be inclined to think, well, that solves the issue. Nothing could be further from the truth. After the split in 1517, four additional branches formed, mostly splitting from the observance. You had the Capuchins, who felt the observance had not reformed close enough towards the original rule of St. Francis, and were starting to stray closer to the conventional position. So, in 1525, the Capuchins broke away from the observance in a reform led by Father Matteo di Biasi. The Capuchins, by the way, come up in our episode on Catholic food and drink when we talk about cappuccino. And there's also a reference to capuchin monkeys. All that has to do with the fact that the Capuchins wear a brown habit with a large hood. But I digress. Another group who were even more extreme than the Capuchins were the Discalced Franciscans, founded by Juan de la Puebla. They basically broke away from a group of observants, but sought a very austere and penitential life, even going beyond the rule of St. Francis, and ultimately were suppressed in 1897. A third group that broke away would be the Reformati, who started out similar to the Discalced, as a group seeking a more penitential and austere life also called for than the rule of St. Francis, whose life included scourging, fasting, and many prayers. And a fourth breakaway group after the 1517 council were a group called the Recollects. They weren't so much fighting for a particular interpretation of the rule of St. Francis, but simply stated they made recollection houses, which were monasteries where friars could devote themselves to prayer and penance. Their focus was on a monastic hermitage life, and unfortunately Kevin and I are just getting warmed up, but I think we'll leave it there so we don't leave our audience too confused. I'll mention here also that this process of the formation of new Franciscan orders did not end in the Middle Ages or the Reformation period, but in fact it has continued all the way down to the present. There are many different Franciscan orders, um, both the female and the male side, Sisters of St. Francis of various kinds, and also Franciscan friars. All the way down, in fact, at least to the 1980s, there are CFRs, Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, who were founded in New York in the 1980s. All of these families of the Franciscan order taking ultimately their inspiration from the original founder, St. Francis himself. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because I almost forgot to mention my cousin, who is a Franciscan. And I believe it's the Sisters of St. Francis of the Martyr St. George. And there are some things that make Franciscans distinct from many of the other orders. One of these would be something we mentioned in our History of the Mass, which is the Franciscan liturgy. This was one of the liturgies that was allowed for by Quo Primum, since it predated the period where the later uses and versions of the Mass had been banished. The Franciscan liturgy was very similar to the Latin Rite or Roman Rite of the time, with a few little distinctions that were covered in our History of the Mass episode. Additionally, there are many different habits in the order. If you see a Franciscan, if you see St. Francis, you should see him in a brown habit. There's also gray habits, black habits, different colors of brown habits, hoods, cows, not the animals, C-O-W-L. And another thing that makes Franciscan habits unique that I did want to mention was something called a seraphic rosary, which hangs down from a cord that the Franciscan used to hold their habit. A seraphic rosary, also called a Franciscan crown, is a seven-decade rosary originating from a Franciscan novice in 1422, whose name has been lost to history. This novice had a habit of offering a handmade crown of roses to the Virgin Mary daily. Upon entering the novitiate, he realized he would no longer be able to do this because of the duties that were required of him now as a Franciscan. 
This novice became distressed and contemplated withdrawing from the order when the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to him and comforted him by showing him another way he could offer her devotion in place of this handmade crown of roses. And this was a rosary celebrating the seven joys of Mary. So this is basically a seven-decade rosary with mysteries of the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity, the Adoration of the Magi, finding the child Jesus in the temple, the resurrection of Jesus, and the seventh one is a combination of the Assumption and crowning of Mary as Queen of Heaven. So, just an aside, next time you try to pray rosary as a family and you have a child or someone who complains it's too long, just remind them it could be a seven-decade rosary. In addition to habits and seven-decade rosaries, the Franciscans have also been very influential in practices and traditions in the Catholic Church. Their various feast days and practices they introduced, such as the Feast of St. Joseph, the Feast of the Blessed Trinity, a devotion to the Immaculate Conception was something they strongly favored, as was adoration of the Eucharist, and of course the aforementioned nativity sets we find at Christmas, and Stations of the Cross, which will be covered in an upcoming episode by St. Leonard of Port Maurice. The Franciscans have also brought us many members of the hierarchy. We've had five popes who are Franciscans, Nicholas IV, Alexander V, and Sixtus IV, who were all of the observant order of Franciscans. Then you had Sixtus V and Clement XIV, who were conventual Franciscans. All these Franciscans date from the 1200s to 1700s, so it's been a while since we've had a recent Franciscan pope, although we currently do have a Jesuit who took the name Francis. There is also, Scott, by the way, Pope Pius X, which I just learned through my research on this episode, Pius X was apparently a member of the secular Franciscan order. So not exactly a Franciscan in the sense that the others were, but that would be a more recent pope who was, in a way, part of the Franciscan family. Another way, Franciscans have been influential in the church, besides providing five popes, hundreds of cardinals, and thousands of bishops, patriarchs, and archbishops, is through their missionary endeavors. Francis himself set out to convert the Sacrosans. In 1212, he set out and sailed towards Syria, only to have his ship shipwrecked, forcing him to return to Italy. A couple years later, in 1214, he again set out to convert the infidels and shed his blood for Christ. This time, he went the other direction and headed through Spain towards Morocco. On this trip, he became severely ill in Spain and had to return to Italy. In 1219, Francis made a third attempt. This one actually was successful. In the third attempt, with 11 companions, he preached to the Christian forces and then fearlessly entered the infidel camp and was taken to the Sultan, to whom he boldly preached. While in the Middle East, Francis visited the Holy Land, laying the groundwork for the Franciscans as the custodians of the holy sites, which they still enjoy today. So if you happen to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, you will happen to notice there are many Franciscans at many of these churches. Speaking of which, I have an old friend who joined the Franciscans and was sent to the Holy Land, which I think he was at the Church of the Dormition, but I've lost track of him. As the years have passed, and I'm not exactly sure where he is at presently. As Scott indicates, from the time of Francis himself, a missionary spirit has been at the heart of the Franciscan order. Friars were sent out to preach from the very beginning. Francis himself to Egypt and the Holy Land, as Scott mentioned. In fact, chapter 12 of the Rule of St. Francis is about missionary activity. It's a very brief chapter, and uh, the title of it is a function of a different time and place, but this is the way it reads. 
concerning those who go among the Saracens and other infidels. But in any case, it's clear that the missionary spirit was at the heart of the Franciscan order. Other Franciscan missionaries went out in the 1200s to Muslims in various places, especially in Morocco. There were several early Franciscan martyrs as a result of this missionary activity. Franciscans have been active in North Africa ever since, often in very difficult conditions. In addition in the 1200s, there were a couple in particular remarkable travels and missions to the heart of Asia. Two extraordinary individuals, John of Carpini and William Rubruck, both Franciscans who undertook journeys to the great Khan of Mongolia. Both of them kept accounts of their travels and these have become famous in the history of interaction between Europe and Asia. Some of the earliest European accounts of what Western and Central Asia looked like, the cultures and the rulers and so on. There was also a Franciscan mission to China in the late 1200s. There have been various waves of Christian missionary activity to China over the course of the centuries. Many of them have been ultimately unsuccessful and that's the case with the Franciscan mission in the 1200s as well. There was success initially. For about 75 years, the Franciscans were free to preach the gospel, and they achieved many Catholic converts. There were thousands of Chinese Catholics by the time the Franciscan mission ended after about 75 years. But the rise of the Ming Dynasty in 1368 put an end to this Franciscan mission, and there was no more Catholicism in China until Matteo Ricci and the Jesuits arrived in the late 1500s. Shortly thereafter, Franciscans were active once again there from the 1600s forward, and they were also active in other parts of Asia, such as the Philippines, Japan, and India. During the Age of Exploration, Franciscans often accompanied French, Portuguese, and Spanish explorers around the world. They were thus the first to preach the gospel in parts of Africa and the Americas. In our outline of the various pieces of the Franciscan order, we mentioned the Recollects. The Recollects developed in the late 1500s, especially in France. There were 2,500 Recollect houses by the time of their suppression by the French Revolution in the late 18th century. Until they were gradually replaced by the Jesuits, the Recollects were the foremost missionary order in New France. So it was they who were evangelizing the native peoples of Canada and the northern United States. An important figure here is the Belgian recollect Louis Hennepin. He came to New France in 1675. He worked among the Mohawk tribe around Lake Ontario. He was the first European to describe and to bring to the attention of the world Niagara Falls. He then explored and preached in the western Great Lakes region. He was captured by the Sioux or Lakota Indians and with them traveled around Minnesota. He was therefore the first European also to describe St. Anthony Falls, which is on the Mississippi River in what is now the city of Minneapolis. Those falls were so named by Hennepin after the great Franciscan Saint Anthony of Padua. Hennepin was eventually released by his Indian captors and he died in Rome. Franciscans were also very important in Spanish America, along with the Jesuits and Dominicans. Franciscans arrived in Mexico in the 1520s. Besides the modern nation of Mexico, they established missions in places like the states of Florida, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. Franciscans led the mission in the St. Augustine, Florida region. Many lost their lives there, and they were among those known as the Martyrs of La Florida. Franciscans also active in California, perhaps most famously from the American Catholic perspective, 
There they were initially led by Saint Yinipero Serra. Serra was working as a missionary in the Mexico City area and was an administrator at the Franciscan Colegio San Fernando when he was appointed president of the missions of Alta California. Alta California would be that part of California that is the modern state, Baja California, that part that is still within the nation of Mexico. The first mission of Alta California was San Diego, founded in 1769. Eight others would be founded under his presidency, St. Unipero's that is. There are 21 total California missions, including, among others, Santa Barbara, San Jose, Mission Dolores, or Mission San Francisco de Assis, which is in San Francisco, Santa Clara, and San Juan Capistrano. I've actually been to a couple of those missions you mentioned, Kevin. I've been to the Alamo, which I guess would have been Texas, and then San Juan Capistrano years ago. That was, I guess, before I was really Catholic and really understood the history of it. So it's kind of cool looking back, seeing the history now. But it is pretty awesome you can go back and actually visit these missions. San Juan Capistrano is the one mission that I have visited, uh, and I was actually a practicing Catholic at the time, <laughs> so I was in the chapel for Mass. <laughs> I think I was in the chapel. I was just looking like, oh, this is pretty. I took a picture and left. <laughs> One other Franciscan mission that's, I guess you could call it a mission, would be EWTN, the Turner Ward Television Network started by Mother Angelica. She herself was a Franciscan, and even though she pretty much lived in a cloister, she evangelized now through the whole world through printing and shortwave and they had the cable channel and now they have Catholic News Agency and they have National Catholic Register. So obviously a huge missionary endeavor there. Missions adapted for the modern world. One of the missions we mentioned is Santa Clara. Now Santa Clara or Santa Clara has a university in the city, but that's not a Franciscan university. That's a Jesuit one. Jesuits have become kind of like the railroads in these podcasts. It seems like we mentioned the Jesuits in every one. We do have an episode on the Jesuits specifically. But with that said, Franciscans also have their universities. Now, with their focus on poverty and humility, I don't think Franciscans are as much associated with universities or higher learning as the Dominicans or Jesuits, for example, but they nonetheless have an impressive legacy in higher education and intellectual life. Blessed Duns Scotus was a Scottish Franciscan, nearly contemporary with Thomas Aquinas. He taught at universities in Oxford and Paris, and is a major figure in the history of philosophy. I believe, if I remember correctly, he was also an advocate for the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which Scott mentioned earlier. Roger Bacon, around the same time, also associated with Oxford and Paris, he's widely recognized as a key figure in the development of science, in particular the scientific or empirical method. St. Bonaventure, yet another contemporary in the 1200s, early 1300s, is recognized as one of the intellectual and spiritual giants of the Middle Ages. He's the author of The Soul's Journey into God. He's also the author of one of the earliest Lives of St. Francis. Now in Europe, Franciscans for the most part established houses near universities and in that way participated in university life rather than founding colleges or universities of their own. But there are a few Franciscan universities. One of those, the Pontifical University of St. Bonaventure or the Seraphicum, we have an episode on Pontifical Universities. Scott, I can no longer remember because it must have been three or four weeks ago that we did that, but I'm assuming you mentioned the Pontifical University of St. Bonaventure in that podcast. If not, we are now. So. <laughs> the Seraphicum was founded in 1587 by one of the Franciscan popes that we mentioned earlier, Sixtus V, and it is managed by the conventual Franciscans. There are in the United States, however, 23 Franciscan colleges and universities. 
So they've had a major role in university life here. A few of those, University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne, Indiana, that was founded by the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. There's Alverno College, which is a women's college in Milwaukee. That's run by the School Sisters of St. Francis. There's St. Bonaventure University in New York, which is run by the Order of Friars Minor, the OFMs. And then there's Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. That's run by the TORs, the Third Order Regular. They experienced a remarkable turnaround at Franciscan University in the 1970s under Father Michael Scanlon. And probably what Franciscan University of Steubenville is least known for is the fact that one of its graduates is Kevin Schmeising. I thought that was one of the things they put on their flyers. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I haven't made it into any of their flyers yet, but if this podcast goes big enough, it will be one of their claims to fame. And so I do have a personal connection to the Franciscans and some personal affection for the Franciscan order. At Franciscan, I enjoyed praying often with perpetual adoration in the Portiuncula Chapel, which is a replica of the chapel that Scott mentioned that figured so prominently in the life of St. Francis and the early life of the order. And there were lots and lots of San Damiano crosses all over campus. We've already had occasion to mention many Franciscan saints besides St. Francis himself, St. Juan Capistrano, St. Junipero Serra, St. Bonaventure, and so on. There have been many over the course of the centuries in the Franciscan order, but we're gonna also highlight the lives of just a few more some of our favorites. So one of these is St. Peter of Alcantara, born in, amazingly, Alcantara, Spain in 1499. Peter joined the Franciscans of the Stricter Observance in 1515. So as you can guess, that would have been one of these many divisions we mentioned earlier, seeking to more strictly observe the rule of St. Francis. He spent much of his life doing what Franciscans did, preaching, living in solitude and contemplation, and, ex and practicing extreme penances, which is one of the things he was really known for. He founded several Franciscan communities and devoted himself to great rigor in following the more observant adherence to the rule of St. Francis. The other thing St. Peter of Alcantara is pretty well known for is being the spiritual director of someone named St. Teresa of Avila. And much of what we know of St. Peter's works, his ecstasies, his miracles, and prophecies come to us from her autobiography. Another Franciscan saint who I want to highlight is someone who actually isn't a saint, but a venerable, Venerable Mary of Agrida, born in 1602 in a small Spanish town, Agrida. When she was 17, she entered a convent of discalced Franciscans, the poor Clares of the Immaculate Conception at Agrida. She took her vows as Sister Mary of Jesus a year later in 1620, and against her wishes, she was elected abbess at the age of 25. She was continually elected abbess until her death in 1667, except for a three-year period when she was given a reprieve from this rule. As the superior, Mary of Jesus led by example, always seeking to perform the most menial tasks in the convent, such as sweeping the halls, nursing the sick, and washing the sickbed linens. She practiced a strict observance of fasting and mortifications, which included abstaining from meat and animal products, including eggs, milk, and cheese. And you can hear more about the ancient Christian practice of fasting in our episode on fasting. She slept for only about two or three hours each night on a board, and every night she made the way of the cross laden with a heavy cross. She received special revelations concerning the life of the Virgin Mother of God, which she reluctantly recorded 
in a book titled The Mystical City of God, which we do have a copy of here in our home, but it is a 600-page tome that I have yet to tackle. Also, the reason I wanted to mention or highlight St. Mary of Agrita is she received the gift of bilocation, and from 621 to 631, without ever leaving her convent in Spain, she made some 500 visits to the native Indian tribes of the Tejas, Chalescas, Humanos, and Cubercos, in what are now Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, which are areas that Kevin mentioned as homes of Franciscan mission sites. Even though she only spoke Spanish, she instructed each of these tribes in their own language about the Catholic faith. She appeared to them as a lady in blue, and at her prompting, they sought out the Franciscan missionaries of the area, presenting themselves for baptism. The missionaries were surprised to find these natives already had some knowledge of the faith, and upon investigations, it was determined that this lady in blue who was visiting them was Mary of Agrita from her convent in Spain. There are actually many more details that could be said about the venerable Mary of Agrita and her bilocations, but to keep this episode within a somewhat reasonable time, I'll save that for a possible future episode. The saints I'd like to highlight are of much more modern vintage. This first one, no doubt many of our listeners will be familiar with, St. Maximilian Kolbe. He was born in 1894 in what was then the Kingdom of Poland. At the age of 12, he experienced a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary and had a lifelong devotion to her. A year later, he, along with an older brother, joined a nearby group of conventual Franciscans. Maximilian took his final vows in 1914, went to study in Rome at the Gregorian, where he obtained a doctorate in philosophy, and then at the aforementioned Pontifical University of St. Bonaventure, where he obtained a doctorate in theology. In the meantime, in 1917, he organized the Militia Immaculata, or Knights of the Immaculata. Through the Knights, and in other ways, he promoted total consecration to Mary. In 1918, he was ordained a priest. He returned to Poland, taught for a time at a seminary in Krakow, and then he started a publishing apostolate, which grew immensely and founded a new monastery near Warsaw. Colby also undertook missionary work in China and then Japan, was more successful in Japan, where he established a monastery, and then he later also started one in India, so continuing the missionary endeavors of the Franciscan order. He was back in Poland in 1933, then back to Japan for a time, and then finally returned to Poland again. On the eve of World War II, the monastery that Maximilian had founded in Poland was the largest in the world, housing 750 men. As you can imagine, World War II was a watershed, not only for Poland, but also for St. Maximilian personally. He continued to try to operate his apostolate from the monastery, but it was under constant threat from the Nazis. Maximilian worked to save Jews and others in danger. He also published anti-Nazi material, and this, of course, put him in the crosshairs of the Gestapo. In February of 1941, the monastery was shut down, and St. Maximilian was arrested. In May, he was transferred to the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp. Even in those desperate conditions, he managed to retain his humanity and charity. The end of his life is a famous episode in it. Ten men were picked at random to be starved to death in punishment for a fellow prisoner's escape. One of the doomed men broke down lamenting for his wife and children. And in response, St. Maximilian stepped forward and offered himself in the man's place. The Nazis in control of the camp agreed, and Colby was added 
to the list of the ten to be starved. After two weeks of no food or water, Colby was the only one left. He was injected with poison and he died August 14, 1941. For obvious reasons, it puts me in mind of the passage from the Gospel of John 15:13. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Nowhere better reflected than in the life and death of St. Maximilian Colby. He was canonized by his fellow Pole, John Paul II, in 1982, and he has inspired yet more Franciscan orders. The Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate were inspired by the life of St. Maximilian Colby. Kevin, you mentioned one thing earlier in your description of Maximilian Kolbe, which I think is pretty amazing. The monastery that he established in Japan, how that was in one of the cities that was bombed with the atomic bomb. And I think that's an amazing episode. It was in Nagasaki, yes. And how when the bomb was dropped, I believe they were praying the rosary inside when the bomb went off. And if you see the pictures of Nagasaki after the bomb hit, basically everything is leveled except for this home of Maximilian Kolbe's Franciscans. Yeah, that's right. Nagasaki was the center of the Catholic population in Japan, which was a very small part of the population, but um, nonetheless, the center of, the, of Catholic Japan and also, of course, the epicenter for the dropping of the second atomic bomb. And there's lots of interesting stories connected with that, but maybe a future podcast. The second saint I wanted to look at, again, like Venerable Mary of Agreda, not yet a saint, but on his way, Blessed Solanus Casey. He was born in 1870 as Bernard, or Barney, into an Irish farm family in rural Wisconsin. He was the sixth of 16 children. He worked manual labor jobs for a few years, and then he entered the high school seminary for the Diocese of Milwaukee. That seminary, titled, guess what, St. Francis Seminary. He always found academic studies a challenge, and so seminary officials recommended that he join a religious order instead. What better place for a humble, simple Christian than the Franciscans? He entered the Capuchin Franciscan St. Bonaventure Monastery in Detroit and took the name Solanus after St. Francis Solano, yet another Franciscan saint from the 16th century, a missionary to South America. Oh, and by the way, one of the California missions, the 21st, is San Francisco Solano. Solanus took vows as a Franciscan in 1901. He continued to struggle to grasp the finer concepts of theology, and so he was eventually ordained, but as a simplex priest, this was in 1904. Simplex priest meant that he did not have faculties for confessions and was not to preach doctrinal sermons. But that didn't prevent him from achieving great holiness. He worked for 20 years in New York City and then 20 years back at St. Bonaventure Monastery in Detroit. After about 10 years in Huntington, Indiana, he returned to St. Bonaventure and that's where he died in 1957. Most of his career was spent serving as a porter or a doorman, welcoming visitors to the monasteries. But he did much more than welcome visitors. He brought comfort and assistance to the sick and the poor especially. People recognized his holiness in the midst of his simplicity and they sought him out for favors, advice, sometimes miraculous healings. Solanus was beatified by Pope Francis in 2017. He was part of a big family, as I mentioned. Even though two of his brothers became priests, that still left 13 others to get married and so there is a large Casey family, 300 of his family members, descendants, were at the mass of his beatification, and among them were my brother and sister-in-law and their family, because my sister-in-law, her maiden name is Casey, and she is a descendant of one of Solanus's brothers. So those are just four of the many 
many Franciscan saints, so if you did not hear your favorite Franciscan saint mentioned, just remember there will be hopefully many more Catholic History Trek episodes, and some of the obvious ones, like Padre Pio, Marianne Cope, Unipericera, Joseph of Cupertino, Dun Scotus, there's a good chance that some of these guys may appear in future episodes. But these were four that you know, probably would not be getting their own episode anytime soon, so we did want to make sure we mentioned them. And Scott, I don't know if you had a plan for how to bring this episode to a conclusion, but one thought that I had was the prayer of St. Francis. But then I thought about it further and I realized, well, the prayer of St. Francis is actually of modern provenance and it doesn't really have any direct connection to St. Francis's life. And plus, I thought you probably don't have that one memorized in Latin, so <laughs> we won't use that one. But I, in the course of thinking through that, I did come up with another prayer that comes from the writings of yet another Franciscan saint, this one, Blessed Giles of Assisi. He was one of St. Francis' early followers. There's a collection of his writings that has been published, and I think it, it kind of approximates the prayer of St. Francis, reflects the same spirit, and so therefore I think captures the spirit of the Franciscan order and what St. Francis represented as a devout Christian. Blessed is he who loves and does not therefore desire to be loved. Blessed is he who fears and does not therefore desire to be feared. Blessed is he who serves and does not therefore desire to be served. But we'll also finish with our traditional Latin prayer. Gloria Patria et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Sicuterat in principio et nunc et semper, et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.